you would, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to start there. Our reading in John chapter 8 that Sammy just read for us, Jesus speaking, said, If you know the truth, it will set you free. And when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. So I have a question for you. Why am I wearing a tie today? I did a little research on ties this week. Turns out originally they were a sign of slavery or submission. Later they became worn by the military as a form of protection for the throat. That's why all of our police officers and military dress uniforms still have ties today. Then I found out later in Europe it was a sign of social class, that if you were of a certain status, you could wear a tie, but if you weren't of that status, you weren't allowed to wear one. So why is it we wear ties today in church? Does God care? Adam didn't wear a tie. I saw Moses in the Ten Commandments part the Red Sea. He wasn't wearing a tie. I've seen the actual photo of the Last Supper, no one wearing a tie. And Jesus returns on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation wearing a white robe and no tie. Sammy didn't wear a tie. I was actually going to put my tie on backwards for this. Start a new trend. The rally tie. Right? How ridiculous was it years ago when people wore their baseball hats backwards? When's the last time you've seen someone wear it the right way? Where do these traditions come from? Christ has set us free. The book of Galatians shows us that he has set us free. Free from all these trappings. Free from men. Free from legalism. Free from all these things. And yet Christians continue to live in them. Why do we do that? Well, the better question that I hope to answer today is because Christ has set us free, what should we do? So if we take a look here at John chapter, I'm sorry, we'll look at uh, Galatians chapter 1. You'll see in the first five chapters of Galatians, we're set free from something unique in each of the five chapters. Then chapter 6, he tells us what to do with our freedom. So in the first chapter, we're set free from pleasing men, wearing neckties. Why do I wear one, by the way? Because in this country... It's considered to be the highest form of dress. And some people feel you should dress the best when you're presenting the word of God. So when I come preach, I wear it. So as not to stumble someone and to hide the food stains on my shirt. But in the first chapter of Galatians, he says we're free from pleasing men. In verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would rather not be... I would not be a servant of Christ. See, religion always forces us to please man. The true gospel sets us free to please God. Galatians chapter 1 starts out in the context that if anybody comes and preaches another gospel to you, another Jesus, or another spirit, let him be accursed. And again, even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches you a different gospel, a different spirit, a different Jesus, let him be accursed. My brother Dan here and others have been out there talking to Mormons all week at Hill Cumorah. Guess where they got their false gospel from? An apparent angel came and gave him. False gospel. What does Mormonism wind up doing? Tying men into legalism. Obey our rules, our regulations, serve us. It doesn't turn people onto the freedom that's in Christ. And Paul's saying it's a false gospel. You have a freedom in Christ that frees you from pleasing men. In chapter 2, he continues with this by saying you're also free from legalism. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 2, is a key verse, I think. The legalists are often known as the yes-butters. Yes, I know I'm free, but we still have to do these things, these rules, these laws, these regulations, these traditions, whatever they are, they force them on us. They're not what God necessarily commands or desires. It's what men make us do. I, uh, I don't know if you've been in a Catholic church before, but when you walk in, there's a little bowl by the door that has ordinary tap water in it. But a priest comes and prays over it. Now it becomes holy water. And when you walk into the church, you're supposed to dip your fingers in it and anoint yourself in the sign of the cross for some sort of blessing or purification. Well, I had a friend that was going to a wedding at a Catholic church, hadn't been one before. He came in, saw it there, and put his cigarette out in it. <laughs> now that freaks some people out in the Catholic church, right? <laughs> what was it to him? It was a man-made tradition. 
I don't see it in here any place where we have to put a gold bowl with water, have a priest bless it, and anoint ourselves before we even walk into a building. And so to him it was, hey, nice ashtray. But to the people, they were greatly stumbled by it because they had so been entrapped in this legalistic system and ritual that it offended them. See, legalism is the failure to distinguish between Scripture and Scripture application. What the Bible actually says and how you're supposed to put it into practice. And the Pharisees would do what was called hedging the law. If the law says you can't cross this line, the Pharisee would say you can't cross this line. Because just in case you trip and fall, you'll still be in front of this line and you'll be okay. They're hedging the law. The law says you can't make mud on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees go a step farther and say you can't spit on the ground because your spit might actually hit the dirt and make mud and you'll violate that law. They miss the intention altogether. The idea of making mud on the Sabbath is to prepare bricks to work and he doesn't want you working on the Sabbath. It has nothing to do with he doesn't want you spitting on the Sabbath. But legalism will bind us into these things to after a while, someday our kid will say, Dad, why can't I spit today? I don't know. We just have always not spit on Saturday. You see how legalism? And so here Paul is coming after Peter and Barnabas because they're with all these Jews and they're being Jews again, even though they're set free. And in chapter 2 here, they're even making the Gentiles Live like Jews, being circumcised and things. And Paul says, you're not getting it. Even fellow apostles, you're not getting it. Here's the key, verse 20. He's, Paul says, for I've been crucified with Christ. And this life that I leave, it's no longer me, but it's Christ who lives in me. I live this life for the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. It has nothing to do with us trying to do works or acts to please an outward God. It has everything to do with an inward God trying to do things through us to bless others. And Paul says, if you don't get this concept of the gospel, you've lost your freedom. It's another form of a false gospel. And that's what he says in verse 14. They were not in step with the true gospel. As bad as Mormonism is teaching a whole other gospel, Judaizing and legalism was just as bad in Paul's mind. He said, you've been set free from that. Live in the freedom. Don't be brought back into that bondage and don't bring other people into it. Live in it. You're free. You're set free. You know, Philippians chapter 2, it says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And a lot of people end the verse right there. But the second half of it says, for it's God who works in us both to will and to work of his good pleasure. We're given a salvation freely. Work it out. Live it out by allowing God who's within us to go ahead and do what he chooses to do through us. So we're free from pleasing men. We're free from legalism because of Christ. We're also free from the law's curse in chapter 3. And the key verse there is verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Or you could look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. I don't know if you're familiar with Ray Comfort and his style of evangelism, but he'll walk up to someone and say, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. Have you ever stole something? Even like a pencil from work. Yeah. Have you ever thought lustfully about a woman that's not your wife? Well, yeah. What are you going to do about it? You just broke three of the Ten Commandments. What are you going to do about it? Is there a priest around someplace that can offer a lamb for you? What, what are you going to do to take care of your sin? And he's like, well, I don't know. Well, let me tell you what you do. There was a lamb of God that was slain, Jesus Christ. He takes the sin of the world. You need to trust in him. You see, the law now is a taskmaster to lead us to Christ. We're not living under the law. The law shows us our sinfulness and a need for the Savior. So now Christ set us free from the law. Now, understand this, though, that we're still law-abiding citizens, right? The opposite of law is not grace. The opposite of law is lawlessness. If we all of a sudden don't have to obey the Ten Commandments, then we can go kill, steal, lie, commit adultery all we want. That's not what he's saying. The law says that we have to do something for God. Lawlessness says we don't have to do anything for anybody. 
But grace says God did something for us. It's not law opposite grace, right? Grace is where we live, though. And because we're children of grace, we're free from the law. Tied to that in chapter 4 is we're free from the curse of the old covenant or the bondage of it. In verses uh, 21 through 31 of chapter 4, he goes and sets up this allegory, right? A story of two women. Well, these two women were real women that God actually created and had do certain things in real time so that we could get this concept of the old covenant and the new. One of them was Hagar, Abraham's handmaiden, and the other one was Sarah, Abraham's wife. God promised Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a child even in their old age. Well, they began to doubt the prophecy, so they agreed to let Abraham sleep with his handmaiden, Hagar, and she had a son named Ishmael. Well, later, Isaac was born as the promise was given. And so Paul in Galatians says, let me help you understand this, you Jews, who I'm telling you this to. There's two covenants. One is represented by the bondwoman. The other by the free woman. The child of the bondwoman was conceived while you were trying to help God. The child of the free woman was conceived by prophecy and by faith. The child of the bondwoman represents the work of the flesh. The child of the free woman represents the, the God's blessing and his unilateral covenant, his promise to fulfill the womb, a barren womb, a dead womb, not the covenant of bondage. One covenant was given to us on Mount Sinai on tablets of stone. The other was given to us on Mount Calvary with the Savior on a cross. One becomes an heir of bondage. One becomes an heir of God Almighty. And so in verse 31 of chapter 4, he says, So we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You get it? We're free from pleasing men. We're free from legalism. We're free from the curse of the law. We're free from the bondage of the old covenant. And then in chapter 5, the big one, we're free from the slavery of sin. Key verse, verse 13 of chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Like we had read in Romans chapter 8, we're free if we walk by the Spirit. We have an opportunity to walk by the flesh and to please the flesh, or to walk by the Spirit and to allow the Spirit to do the works through us. And he says, don't use the opportunity for the flesh but use it for the Spirit. Reed just did a fantastic job of expounding Romans to us, but a couple of verses in Romans chapter 8, the first two. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Who's your daddy? Do you feel free to call God Daddy? Do you feel that because he has completely liberated you, come to indwell you, that you can now respond from within your spirit to call him your father in heaven in an endearing way. Very often people come to church year in and year out and understand everything about Christianity, but it never moves to their heart. It's not a mental ascent. It's a real thing that has to happen in our lives where we finally trust the Savior who sets us free, completely trust Him to the place where the life that we now live in the flesh is no longer our life, but it's His life living out through us. When my daughter was diagnosed with a terminal cancer. I was with a friend and I cried out, Lord, take my life, not hers. My friend said, you don't have it to bargain, Dan. You don't own your life anymore. Christ bought it at Calvary. We've got to get to this place where it's not just in our heads, but it's in our heart that we have been set free. 
You know, Pastor Reed sends out a mail note called Margin Notes where he gives comments. And this week he said this in one of his notes, The true putting away of sin is never located merely in the amendment of actions, but must be accompanied with a true change of the heart. One can know the gospel and even assent to its truth and still not personally trust Christ as their sin bearer. So we can learn and believe the sweetest and purest doctrinal systems and still be bound in sin and perishing. Have you been set free from your sin today? You know. We all have sins as Christians. The struggle is still there. But is there victory? Do you know that Christ is within you and that his spirit is helping you to overcome? If not, maybe you've never really trusted Christ to do that for you. You haven't tossed everything onto his shoulders at Calvary. Everything. I plead with you to do it today. He will set you free from that. My father said to me the other day, you know, Dan, I can resist anything but temptation. I said, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit, that's pretty much true. In and of ourselves, we'll fail every single time, but there is a victory in Christ. And that victory cost him a great price, but granted us a great freedom. And this is what Paul is trying to tell the Judaizers. He's writing this entire book to the Galatian church. It's struggling with this man-pleasing issue and says, understand your freedom in Christ. Understand it. You're free indeed. And then he ends the letter with chapter 6 by saying, the reason why Christ has made you free indeed is so you can bless other people. Free indeeds. And so we'll look at the first part of chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, the practical part of the epistle. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bury his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, this is no random postscript to the end of this letter. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, to the Romans, to the Philippians, to the Second Corinthian letter. All of them started out with the wonderful things we have in Christ and great theology, and then it ends with here's how we're supposed to deal with our time and our money. This is exactly the way he's ending this letter here. He said, if you have been set free in Christ and you know it, use that freedom to share other people's burdens and to bless other people, especially those of the household of faith. Now, this first verse here says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Here we're bearing burdens by restoring those who are overtaken in a sin. It's interesting here, the word for overtaken is someone who slipped, like they slipped on ice, or they were running away from sin and it overtook them. It's not a deliberate, willful, I'm going to continue to do this sin, but maybe they've got trapped in you know, gambling or pornography, or they just never expected the relationship would turn into adultery, or whatever it was, all of a sudden they're exposed, and the church has to deal with the issue. The sin is not important here. As a matter of fact, he spends most of the five verses telling you how to handle it as a believer trying to minister to him because there's always sin in our lives. There's always sin in the church. He said the important thing is our attitude when it's exposed. So he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Well, who's that? Of course, it's the deacons and elders, right? They're the spiritual ones. Trust me, I move in those circles a lot. They're not all that spiritual all the time. Right? If anyone who is born again, anyone who has the Spirit of God within them, 
can be used by God to spiritually bless someone, to relieve their burdens. I used to be an elder in a church for a long time and had a huge counseling load. Now I'm not. Ask my wife if there's any difference in me spiritually. It's anyone, it's everyone that's following God's lead can restore someone. And this word restore means to reset a broken bone, to take something that's broken and set it straight again, because this is something that needs healing. If it festers, it's just going to cause problems for everyone. And sin in the church needs to be dealt with. So we need to spiritually recognize it in gentleness and meekness, spiritually approach it. Can be painful, but it has to be done. Now, in Galatia, they had the problem of division. And the division was primarily over legalism. And Paul goes and writes in chapter 5 about their Christian cannibalism, right? You're biting and devouring one another. And he said that you're provoking and envying one another. You're putting your firing squads in circles here. This is not how you deal with this, right? But the legalist still says, yeah, well, this is how I deal with it. I'm prideful. I'm harsh. I'm condemning. I'm exploiting, I'm belittling. And what does that do? It crushes the sinner and it divides the church. But Paul's saying, no, that's the flesh. One who's free in the spirit comes with meekness and humble spirit and loving, kindness, mercy, compassion. Right? They're looking to bring Christ-likeness to both people in the situation. And the result of that is that the sinner is restored and the church is healed. And Paul says, this is the law of Christ. You fulfill another's burdens and you fulfill the law of Christ. I saw a quote this week. It says, the only time a man has a right to look down on another man is when that man has fallen to the ground and he's about to pick him up. Pastor Reed said last week, we're not saved because we're better than anyone else. And if we have that chip on our shoulder, we're going to be just like the legalists. We're going to try to exploit that situation. You know the passage where Jesus says that we had in John chapter 8 read for us, when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed? That's right on the heels of the woman being caught in adultery. Two types of bearing going on there, right? The Pharisees drag the woman to Jesus and bear her sin. Look at this woman. You're caught in adultery. Stone her. And Jesus says, yeah, you with the, without sin throw the first stone. And Jesus dismisses her accusers and sends her on her way. He bears her burden, not bears her sin. This is exactly what Paul is trying to get at here. But then he also says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So don't think this is a casual thing to walk into a sinful situation and try to restore someone. You might fall into their sin. So you need to be somewhat mature in the spirit when you do this, or maybe go as a couple or whatever it might take. You know, I I was uh, counseling a guy who was a young Christian who had a gambling problem when he came to Christ. And I said, anytime you struggle with it, you call me. So he calls me at 9 or 10 o'clock one night and says, I screwed up. I need to talk to you. So I meet him for coffee. He sits down and he says, here, $10,000. I said, what's this? Because every year I go golfing with my buddies up on Niagara Falls. We went up today. It was pouring rain. So we didn't get to play golf. So they go into the casinos like we do every year. These guys wanted to drink and go watch the girly shows and all that. And I didn't want to do that. So I had time to kill. And he goes, honestly, I put one coin in the slot machine and won $10,000. And he goes, I don't know what to do with it. Here, you take it. But me being spiritual... (laughs) said, look, you got to do what's right, okay? This wasn't intentional. It was a circumstance. You fell to a temptation. God gave you a lot of money. Now you've got to deal with it. So do what's right with it. You know, tell your accountant, tell your wife, give some of it away, whatever you need to do, but do what's right with it. So he went home and talked to his wife and she said, while you were out playing golf today, my brother lost his job. So guess where the $10,000 went? I came home and told my wife how spiritual I was, and she said, you did what? (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, it was tempting, um, because I was out of work at the same time. We, We say, you know, but for the grace of God, there goes I. When we're approaching someone else in a situation saying, this could easily be me, so he warns us to watch out. So... Not only do we restore those who are overtaken in a sin and we do it with the right attitude, but we relieve those who are overburdened. 
He says here in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 6, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ in one word is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as I have loved you. The fulfillment of the law in Christ is to love people. Couldn't have been demonstrated any more than Christ going to the cross for us. So Christ takes our burdens continuously. And if we're going to act Christ-like, we're to be taking the burdens of other people. They may be overwhelmed for any number of reasons, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, whatever it is, we're supposed to lift their load and try to make it easier, make it lighter. And there's no contradiction here with verse 5 where it says, for each one will have to bear his own burden. In verse 2, the Greek word there for burden is a heavy load, an overpowering weight. But in verse 5, it's a term for a light backpack, something that we can all carry without it encumbering us. So it's more like you see a fallen comrade in battle. Well, you've got your backpack on, but you run over and you lift him up to bring him to safety. So you're still carrying your load, but you've got to help carry his load. John Stott says this, There is a burden which we cannot share. Indeed, do not need to, because it's a pack light enough for every man to carry himself. And that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry yours. Each man will have to bear his own load. Paul is saying that works do count. Ben Askins, a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night, gave a tremendous talk on judgment day and justification and how everything we do in this life is eternal. And at that day, things will be exposed. And all the things we did in the flesh will be wood, hay, and stubble, amount to nothing. But the things we did by the leading and power of the Holy Spirit will be gold, silver, and precious stone, and there will be rewards for those things. And at that moment, we'll realize that the only things we got rewarded for were the things that God had directed us in our life to do. And so he gives us crowns, he gives us rewards, and we cast it back at him because we know it was all of him in the first place. And this is what Paul is saying. Every one of us has to understand that there's a big purpose in our relieving burdens. It's for our own good, not just for the good of the other people. So do it as Christ would do it. Do it as unto Christ, right? Didn't Jesus say, when was I naked and you clothed me? When was I hungry and you fed me? When I was in prison, you visited me? If you do it unto the least of my brothers, you do it unto me. We're doing it to him. And he's not asking us to overdo it either, right? He's telling us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We already love ourselves. That's why we clothe ourselves and feed ourselves and shelter ourselves. We do all the things we need to. He's saying just do that for others. Right? By the greatest passages in the Scripture on Christian giving are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, where this is addressed in verse 8.13. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So I don't give you the last of my grocery money so you can eat at Mario's today after church. Right? Christ says if you don't take care of your own household, you're worse than an infidel. So I don't take the winter jacket off my son's back and give it to your son because he's cold. I take care of my own. But there are times when God will give me more. If you don't have any place to eat this afternoon, you let me know. I'll bring it to my house. We'll find something to eat. I have an abundance. There's food. I can feed you now. That's the idea. And someday, I might need that meal. I hope you'll reciprocate. We're the body of Christ. When an arm is broken, you can't use that arm. So the other arm has to take over. The rest of the body has to compensate until it heals. Once it's healed, then you watch for the next thing to break. And then the body reacts that way. Right? It's how it's supposed to work. But again, he warns us to be careful how we do this. Be careful how we share. It's a hard attitude that he's after here. In verse 3 and 4, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Interesting that Paul goes and gives us four and a half verses on warning us how to do these things. And he says here that we're in danger of doing them wrong. We can do them for the wrong motives. We can do them out of pride. 
We'll be no better than the legalists when we do. There's a lot of unsafe people that do good works out there, but they do them either to be noticed or to flaunt their wealth or to relieve some guilt that they have, but they're not doing it with true motives. And Paul's saying, be careful. Be careful how you do things, right? The, the, those who do things legalistic want to implement laws, not fulfill the law of Christ. They want to make things harder on people, right? The Pharisees were saying, you don't take the burdens out to people, you add burdens to them. You know, they, they go at it with pride saying, well, this will never happen to me. And he says, don't compare yourself to them. Comparing can be a bad thing. You know, when you're saying, I'm doing better than they are, you've got a prideful problem here. Because you could easily be in their situation. And someone legalistic, someone that's, that's harsh, would try to take the situation to make themselves look good. I heard of a guy one time who had a roommate who was addicted to pornography. And he finally led this man to Christ, and the man repented of his addiction and asked him to help him with it. Well, there was, this was at college, and there was a huge bonfire on college campus that night. So the roommate, the Christian, took all these, guys, all these magazines that this guy had and took them to the bonfire and threw them all in. And everybody's looking at this Christian guy like, whoa, he's got all those magazines? Never exposed his roommate's sin. We don't try to make ourselves look good in light of other people's failures. You don't go there and say, he used to read this and he read that. He's got this one hanging on the wall. And our... He didn't do that. He took it himself, made himself look lower for the sake of his brother. The spirit-filled Christian on the opposite side always finds a way to relieve the burdens. He'll act out of humility and knowing that it could be him. He'll, he'll allow Christ to work through him. Right? He'll, he'll work out of love because he knows how much he's loved. He'll give because he knows how much he's been given. God has a way of putting the proud on the shelf and putting the humble to use. And Paul is confronting some proud people in this book. And he's confronting the churches by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to write this. That we need to be careful in our attitudes. Christ sets us free to bear other people's burdens whether that's restoring them when they've fallen or whether it's to take their load when it's too heavy, he says, bear their burdens. But also, in verses 6 through 10, he says, share your blessings with them. James Montgomery Boyce says this, Christians need to learn that it is in concrete situations rather than emotional highs that the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives is demonstrated. Walking in the Spirit is not a mystical experience or a flight of fancy. Shockingly, Paul illustrates it with the most down-to-earth subjects, personal relationships in Galatians verses 1 through 5, and the use of money in verses 6 through 10. First thing he says about sharing blessings is in verse 6. One who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. You know what that means? Pay your pastors. Pay your teachers. No other way around it. People have tried to make this say other things, but this is exactly what it says. The word for share here is fellowship. To have fellowship with your pastor teachers by shouldering their financial responsibility. The teacher shares spiritual treasures. We're to share material treasures with them. F.F. Bruce says the teacher relieves the ignorance of the pupil. The pupil should relieve the teacher of his concern for his sustenance. This is well-grounded in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14, Paul says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commands that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Jesus sent the disciples out in the early church and said, Don't take a money bag. He said, The people along the way will provide for you. Because a labor is worthy of his wage. And there's another place where that is used. If you'd like to turn there, it's 1 Timothy chapter 5. This passage speaks about treating all of your elders with respect and honor, but especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, 
and the laborer deserves his wages. There are elders that shepherd a church. And there are a subset of elders that we call pastor teachers or lead teaching elders. Those are the ones who labor in the word and doctrine who are worthy especially of a double honor. Clearly in the context of money, you can't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. While he's treading the grain, let him eat some of the food. And the laborer is worthy of his wage. The same thing Christ sent his disciples out with. They need to be paid. There's good reasons for this. All right? Um, First of all, you're showing your value of the word of God and of preaching. How much do you spend every month on uh, Internet and cable TV and newspapers and wherever else you get your information? How much do you value the pulpit and the amount of effort it takes to prepare a message? I know. I have lived as a pastor before, but a bivocational pastor. My church did not have enough money, and I had to work full-time and try to pastor full-time. It does no one any good doesn't do the pastor any good, doesn't do the church any good, doesn't do his family any good. It's almost impossible if you can't stay focused on the Word of God because you have to take care of material needs. And this is a clear command here. You know, we, we have this thing that seems to go around, Lord, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. He'll be a better preacher that way. No, he's not. He's got all the same family responsibilities that you do. You need to share with him in all good things. I know Pastor Tom Ballantyne from Spenceport Bible, his first church was in Tennessee, and afterwards, they said, that was a great sermon, Pastor. You know, do you like chicken? He says, yeah, well, how about you come over and have a chicken on us? All right, great. So he comes over in his Sunday best, walks in the door of this house, and they hand him an axe. They say, we're chicken farmers. You can pick anyone you want in the whole backyard. Go ahead. Take the best one. We don't care. And then the whole family stood in the window and watched this guy try to chase a chicken around with an axe for an hour. And he finally gets the thing all bloodied and everything. Well, thanks a lot. But that was their thing. We're going to let them take any of our chickens. They thought they were really blessing them. I, I had preached on this passage one time, and this old guy comes up to me afterwards. He says, you know what? I just have to give this to you. It's one of my favorite things in life. He gives me a jar of maple syrup. All good things, and this is a good thing. Thank you. Not a timeshare in the Bahamas, but thank you. Right? <laughs> but that's the idea here. There's a pastor one time standing in the back of the church, and a guy's leaving the church and goes, that was a terrible message. And the pastor says, what do you want for a buck? (laughs) A little kid comes up and gives the pastor his dollar allowance and says, here, I want you to have this. The pastor says, why? He says, because my dad says you're the poorest preacher we've ever had. Lots of money jokes in the pastor circle, all right? uh, and this is a hard one for a pastor to speak on, which is one of the reasons why I chose it today. All right? Not that this church has a problem with this. I know Pastor Reed complains about his money, but we take care of him. He lives okay. We've got a mission board as in a testimony of how we take care of those that we send out teaching the word. All right? We've got it. Don't lose it, but just do it in the spirit. Don't do it because you have to out of compulsion. Do it because you really believe in your freedom that you have in Christ and you want others to see and feel that freedom as well. Bless them. Bless them. So we have fellowship with our teachers. We also have faith in our sowing. And this is not, you know, give me $10 and God will give you 100 or any of this faith promise stuff. But there is a principle in Scripture that you sow what you reap. And in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, he says, Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he shall also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is the same concept as in sharing and bearing, right? We can give in the flesh or we can give in the Spirit. And what we do with our material seed, what we plant, is what we'll get back in return. You plant corn, you get corn. You plant weeds, you get weeds. God's not mocked, which is what it's saying here. He knows your attitude, but he also knows that what you plant is irrevocable. Once you put it in the ground, it's not going to change, and it's eternal. You will reap what you sow. So we have an opportunity to sow to the flesh or sow to the spirit. He says if you sow to the flesh, you're going to get corruption. But if you sow to the spirit, you get all the blessings of eternal life. Scripture is full of this, right? Job 4.8, those who sow trouble reap the same. 
Hosea 8.7, sow to the wind and you'll reap the whirlwind. Proverbs 22.8, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. But on the other side, Hosea 10.12 says, sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy. Proverbs 11.18, he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward as righteousness leads to life. Doesn't always say here that you give money and you'll get a lot of money back. But it says give. Give of your time, your talent, your resources, and you may reap a bounty of righteousness or mercy. God knows how to best bless you back. He's not interested in money. He owns it all. Doesn't need an accounting system. Doesn't have to keep track of how much you gave. He owns it all. And this is the attitude we have to get to. First Chronicles 29:14. It says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. You want to see how this works? Real quick little lesson. I want all the guys in the church to stand up. Take out your wallet. Come on, it won't hurt. This is just quick. All right, now take your wallet and give it to somebody else. All right. Now, the ushers are going to come down the aisle with a plate. And I want you to open that wallet and give the Lord's money to the preacher today. Just give it all. Boy, look at that. You can sit down. I don't care what wallet you got. You can sit down. <laughs> so I want my wallet back. <laughs> Do you get the concept that every dollar that's in this church right now is God's? And he wants to do with it what he wants to do with it. And we should be as free to do with it with someone else's money as we are with our own money. Because it's all his. And this is where God's trying to get us to. That he wants us to have fun while we're blessing other people. So he says here in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of well-doing, for in season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sometimes giving of our time, talent, and treasures can be really burdensome and tiring. It can be difficult, and we grow weary. I don't see any fruit from this, Lord. It just seems like I'm going forever here for nothing. Why do I do this? You know, you ever just want to quit? You just want me to quit? <laughs> you know, the day is as a thousand years to the Lord. He says, stay encouraged. Don't worry. I know what you're doing. I'll take care of you. He said, I know you're not giving to get, but you're giving because you love the one who gives. And I'll bless that. He said that I'll give you your money or I'll give you your blessing in due time. But just wait. Right? It's been said. He didn't give us the sermon on the amount. He gave us the service on the mount. Service on the mount, right? I believe that the overriding principle to giving with money, and so do the elders of this church, is found in Second Corinthians chapter eight and nine, and in particular in Second Corinthians nine seven. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Legalists will command a tithe. You must give this much. 10% of everything that comes in, you give to the Lord. You write your first check out every month to the Lord. That's what you have to do. It's required. Christians are told to give regularly and freely and joyfully. Tithe is a misnomer today. I tithe 2%. No, you don't. Tithe is 10. Right? We, we just throw this around today, and it's always uncomfortable. But each one is supposed to decide in their own heart, Lord, how much of yours am I willing to give back to you? And I know that money goes to bless me because it builds up the church. It preaches the word. It helps those who are in need. And that's why we give back our money to the Lord. 10% may be a good place. Maybe you'll get to 90% at some time in your life. Be free. My wife and I have decided, Lord, we'll give you this much no matter what our income is. And then we put aside an offering bucket where we'll take another percent of our income and we put it in there. Lord, if you want to use this, use it. That bucket runs dry every month. I don't know. if No matter how much we put in there, he'd empty it out. And he keeps filling it back up. We have found in the times that I've been unemployed, which have been money, many, that we actually wind up giving percentage-wise more money during that time. And I think it's because we've learned then that anything that's coming in then is from the Lord. 
And so you're so in tune to him and what he's doing that you're in tune to people and what they need. It's a great way to live, but a difficult way to live because our flesh doesn't want to give up anything, let alone all good things. God says you'll be blessed. Maybe soon, maybe later. There was a time when I was unemployed and we were short $2,700 on our bills and it was the end of the month. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And that very day when I just committed it to prayer, I said, Lord, I don't know why everything collapsed in my business this month. I don't know what's happening. You've always been faithful. Why? A check shows up in the mail for $3,000 from our insurance company. We overcharged you in the treatment of your daughter's cancer. Here's $3,000. So we paid our $2,700 worth of bills. We got $300 left. So we said, hey, there's a mission team going to Russia this week with six people. Let's get six $50 bills, put them in an envelope, and anonymously give it to them on Sunday when we go to church. That's the last pennies we have in the world, right? But that's how we were thinking. So we go and give $50 to all these people on the mission team, and they didn't know who. It was anonymous. I was the treasurer. So I gave it to my kids and said, here, go give it. Just say somebody gave it to you. So I'm in church office after the service, and I hear this woman crying in the hall. And so I go out to see why she's crying. The church secretary beats me out in the hall there, and she goes up, what's wrong? And she says, somebody gave me $50. Why would anybody give a millionaire $50? And I'm sitting there banging my head on the wall. I gave my last 50 bucks to a millionaire. You know, it's like, what did I do? You know, Mr. Spiritual here. And she said, you know, my husband's not a believer. And this morning before church, we were at a store, and I wanted to buy a medical bag because she's a nurse to take to Russia with me. And it cost 50 bucks. And my husband said, I'm not giving you a penny for that trip, but if God wants that bag to go to Russia, he'll give you 50 bucks. Best 50 bucks I've ever given to a millionaire. <laughs> There's sermon illustrations you can look up online. I saw one this week when an older pastor was packing up a whole bunch of books that he had in his study to send to a missionary in China. And he sent him there, and a few months later, he winds up getting a letter back from the missionary and says, thank you, thank you so much for the books, but I don't know how I ever thank you for the reading glasses that you put in the box. And it turns out when he was packing the box, he leaned over, they fell out of his pocket into the box, and he said, not only were they the exact right prescription, but they were stylish and expensive. (laughs) You really went all out. Two months later, he got his blessing. We might not get our blessing for 100 years from now. On the other side, we don't know. But it's one of those wonderful life things, right? If you never bless another person, if you never sow a seed, if you never do anything, then you're just not going to have that moment at the end of the movie where everybody comes running in and singing songs and throwing you money, right? You'll just have nothing. Your your life will amount to nothing, and your treasure in heaven will be zilch. God says, come on, get on the program here. We have two opportunities. Galatians 5.13 says we have the opportunity to use our freedom for the flesh, and Galatians 6.10 says we have the opportunity to do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Albert Einstein said that the only life worth living is one lived for others. I think Christ and the Apostle Paul would agree with that. The opposite of the current self-centered, me-focused world that we live in. But true joy comes in serving others and helping others. So if we're not free today, if we're not free from pleasing men, from legalism, from the law, from the covenant, from our sin, well, we've let someone take that freedom from us because it's all ours in Christ. He's given it all to us. And he says, grasp this first. Understand I live in you now, and I'm trying to live out through you to bless others. Take their burdens like I carried yours to the Calvary. Share the blessings with what I give you with other people. You'll reap in due time. The world would like to give good for good, evil for evil, and sometimes evil for good. But Christians are to give good for good and good for evil. So we don't just give to the household of faith. We give to all. Equal opportunity doers. In our church a few years back, there was a couple in the summertime who heard their next-door neighbors arguing through the open windows. Their daughter had fallen and broken her pelvis. 
and she was going to be laid up for a month. And the fight was which one would stay home, the husband or wife, to take care of her because she needed round-the-clock care. And the issue was if they, one of them stayed home, they couldn't pay their mortgage. And so our friends come to us and said, is there anything the church can do? And I said, is there anything you can do? You heard the argument, is God prompting you? And they didn't have any money. So we brought it before the church, and the church said, let's pay their mortgage. Now here's family we don't know. They're not Christians. And I walked up to their door like Ed McMahon with a check for $800. (laughs) Here. We understand that you guys are struggling, and that by us giving you this money, one of you could stay with your daughter. Christ would want that. And it opened the door for a Bible study with this family. We don't think like that too much anymore. We don't build colleges and, and hospitals and nursing homes in the name of Christ much anymore. But he's saying, do good to all, especially the household of faith, especially. And so you'll fulfill the law of Christ. It's all for God's glory, not for man's approval. It's all for an eternal reward. It's not for some temporal praise. Pastor David Campbell says this, A believer is free from the law of Moses and possesses the liberty in the Spirit, but he must fulfill the law of Christ, and this can be done in the power of the Spirit. Such a life involves sacrificial service directed towards sinning Christians, burdened Christians, the pastor-teachers, and all people. Lucy said to Charlie Brown, Why are we on earth? And Charlie said to bless other people. And Lucy says, well, why are the others here then? (laughs) The answer is to bless them. To bless them. Christ has set us free indeed. Let's use our freedom to relieve burdens and share blessings. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ being the perfect example of one who thought nothing of himself but emptied himself and became like us that he might share in all of his riches that he might bear all of our burdens and Lord because we have placed our faith in him we are now free free to call you our father free to come before you because of Christ's righteousness, not our own, free to live a life in the spirit which you've given us. So I'd ask, Lord, that you would help us to overcome the flesh, to help us to live the life of freedom in the spirit that's ours to be had and help us, Lord, to allow you to work out through us to help those around us in whatever walk of life that others may see our good works and glorify you. And we thank you for the love of Christ that's been shed abroad in our hearts. I pray that you would make us sensitive to its leading and to all the promptings of the Spirit as we walk through this life. Help us, Lord, to resist the temptation to serve ourselves, but to use it as an opportunity to bless others and to bring glory to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.